Good evening. Welcome to another bedtime story with Thompson. This is we're reading the Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. This is Chapter Three to the Plat. <clears throat> the journey was monotonous. We would ride for hours over the unbroken carpet of fresh green grass without seeing a tree or a bush. Here and there a crow, a raven, or a turkey buzzard would interrupt the monotony. But nothing interrupted the monotony of the weather. The sun burned down through a hazy sky all day. Towards evening, black thunderhead clouds rose fast above the horizon. Then deep mutterings of distant thunder began to roll hoarsely over the prairie, and soon the entire landscape turned purple in the inky shadows. Suddenly a flash leaped out of the darkest fold of the cloud-filled sky and quivered down to the edge of the prairie. Thunder came in a sharp burst and a long rolling peal. We managed to get the horse's legs hobbled together <clears throat> and the tents up just as the storm broke. The roaring torrents of rain completely shrouded the nearby trees and beat through the tent canvas in a fine drizzle, drenching us as thoroughly as if there had been no tent over us at all. The water dripped from the front of our caps and trickled down our cheeks. Several puddles collected around the tent pole, threatening to cover the entire tent floor. Directly over our heads, the thunder burst with a terrific crash. It was not like the tame thunder of the Atlantic coast. No, this prairie thunder seemed to re-echo around the circle of the heavens with a strange and awful boom. The lightning flashed all night, revealing the vastness of the plain for a moment and then leaving us shut in, as if by a solid wall of darkness. We had spread rubber sheets between our blankets and the ground. The sheets kept the water out for a while, but when the growing puddles on the tent floor began to rise over their edges, the sheets served to keep the water in as well. By morning, we were sleeping in pools of rainwater. When we at last broke camp and set out, it was through mud and slime six inches deep. In a few days, we came to the crossing of the Blue River. When Henry Chatillon saw, saw that the river had become swollen by the rains and was now wider... Deeper and more rapid, he built a log raft. We unloaded the wagons, piled our goods at each corner, or piled our goods on the raft, and with one of our men swimming at each corner, we towed the raft across. Then the empty wagons were easily passed over. We followed on horseback. By the time we camped near the spot where the St. Joseph's Trail meets the main Oregon Trail, we had been eight days without meeting a single human being. But we had found many sad traces of the emigrants' progress. Sometimes we would pass the grave of one who had sickened, died, and was buried on the journey. The earth on the grave was usually torn up and covered with wolf tracks. Other times we would come upon a piece of plank standing on the summit of a grassy hill, and on it would be something like the following, inscribed probably with a red-hot piece of iron. Mary Ellis died May 7, 1845, aged two months. Imagine then the surprising effect on us as we lay around our evening campfire amid the loneliness of the prairie of hearing the distant and faint voices of men and women. The next morning we overtook the emigrant caravan whose tracks we had been following. Its twenty heavy white-covered wagons were creeping on in slow procession with a large herd of cattle following behind. As we pushed rapidly by the wagons, children's faces poked out from behind the white coverings to look at us, and careworn, thin-faced mothers, seated in front, stopped their knitting to stare at us in curiosity. By the side of each wagon walked the husband, urging on his oxen, inch by inch. Some of the men looked enviously at us as we rode lightly and swiftly by. 
We soon left them far behind, but our English companion's wagon became stuck in a deep, muddy ditch, and by the time we got it out, the wagon train had passed us. But the emigrants soon stopped to camp, and again we rolled on past them. When we stopped to rest and dine, I noticed that R was missing, and mentioned it to Quincy. The captain told me that R stayed behind with the emigrants to have one of their blacksmiths shoe his horse, Quincy explained. I was suspicious. Well, Quincy, he should have been back by now, unless something's afoot. I don't like it one bit. Yes, Francis, I... Look! Quincy pointed to a hilltop a mile off, where R and his horse appeared against the sky, followed by a huge white object. What is that blockhead bringing with him now, I muttered. A moment later, my question was answered as, slowly and solemnly, one behind the other, four ox-drawn wagons rolled over the crest of the hill and descended toward our camp. It seemed that some of the emigrants wished to go back, while others insisted on pushing forward. Still others wanted to wait where they were until those they had left behind on the other side of the Blue River to await the birth of a baby rejoined them. It was the group who wanted to push forward, four wagons with ten men, one woman, and one small child, that R had invited to join our party. We could not refuse them our protection because of the danger of Indians in this lonely land, but I did tell Kearsley, their leader, what we expected of them. We won't be delayed any more on our journey, I said. If your oxen can't keep up with our mules, then you'll be left behind. Mr. Parkman, replied Kearsley, our oxen will keep up, and if they can't, why, I'll find out how to make them do it. As it happened, the next day our English companions broke the axle of their wagon. Kearsley's emigrant train lumbered by, and it was a week before we took it again, uh, overtook it again. <clears throat> We were now in the country of the thieving, murdering, and scalping Pawnee Indians. Every spring, Pawnees crossed from their permanent winter villages on the lower Platte to their war and hunting grounds to the south. Our animals and our heads would be tempting targets for these bandits of the plains. So we began to take turns standing guard each night, two men in each of three shifts. We did not know it until we caught up with Kearsley's party, but they had had an encounter with some Pawnees during the week we were separated. As Kearsley told it, Well, sir... We was short of fresh meat, and when we seen these little black specks moving way off, we figured they was buffalo. Of course, none of us had ever seen a buffalo afore, but that didn't make an own never mind. They had to be buffalo, so the ten of us grabs our rifles and sets off, some on horseback and some on foot. After half an hour, we go over the top of this grassy ridge and find ourselves face to face with a passel of unmounted Pawnees, thirty of them. I don't know who was more surprised, them or us. I reckon they figured that even though they outnumbered us three to one, it was their bows and arrows to our guns, and they feared their time had come. So you never did hear such loud and friendly Indian welcomes and see such well-meaning handshakes. Truth to tell, we was as glad as they was to get out of it with our scalps still on. The day we rejoined the emigrants was the day we beheld the long-expected Valley of the Platte. Even though it was a welcome sight, it was hardly a beautiful one. For mile after lonely mile, a vast plain as level as a lake spread out before us. It was crossed here and there by the Platte in a dozen thread-like channels. An occasional clump of woods rose in the middle of the plain like a shadowy island. No living thing moved through this vast landscape except the lizards that darted over the sand and among the grass and prickly pears, a kind of cactus, at our feet. And that is all we have time for tonight, kids. So we'll see you next time for part two of chapter three. Good night.